The following episode of the Nick podcast contains explicit language and spoilers. We highly recommend you watch the corresponding episode before listening. Hello, and welcome to this installment of the Nick Podcast. I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiel. And we're the writers and co-creators of the series. Each week, we will be discussing the latest episode, taking you behind the scenes with various cast and crew for in-depth discussion on what it takes to send you, the viewer, back to the fun-filled days of gloveless surgery, unregulated drug use, and rat-stomping competitions. Today, we'll be discussing episode five, entitled Whiplash, written by co-executive producer Stephen Katz. And along with Jack and myself, our special guest is Rob Stream, the location manager for the show. All those great exteriors and a fair number of the interiors were all found by him and his department. But before we get to Rob, I I think we should start out talking about uh, another one of our great surgical scenes, and that would be the brain experiment followed uh, later in the episode by the actual lobotomy. Or not even lobotomy, but just like the... I don't know if technically it would be a lobotomy. It wasn't a lobotomy. Lobotomy hits a different different part of the brain but yes the uh, uh the, the cutting out of the white <laughs> white matter we'll call it you know this one was extraordinary uh to see even done on set it was absolutely extraordinary well it, it was when they pulled back that membrane when Thackeray pulls back that membrane and the brain is literally pulsing i mean I, it seems so that i think was one of the few surgeries where i was incredibly squeamish because it seemed way too real I just thought an alien was going to pop out of the brain. You know, I just thought I, I, it just it felt like a horror movie. It really did. Yeah. And the, the actor who played the uh, I don't even I don't even know his name. Mr. Carton. Well, Mr. Carton, when he, the way he just he moved his foot, even just that when when his brain was probed was 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 frightening enough. Electricity can also affect our emotions. I will now demonstrate. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what we wanted to do was to show really the experimentation and the fact that, you know, I mean, Thackeray may seem like a madman to us, but, or as everyone seems to pronounce it on our show, madman. Yes. I don't really understand why they do that. I've never heard it said that way. So, it, so it's distinct from madman the series. Exactly. Um, he's crazy, but what was what was extraordinary was that this was how people did things. They tried them and said, "Oh, gee, this is the end result." And you know, and you had these doctors sitting there saying, "Oh, well, this makes total sense. He's just going to start pro- probing a guy's brain, find a spot, and then a couple days later, he's just going to rip out a piece of his brain and go, "Gee, I hope he's cured." Yeah, and this, I mean, the the lobotomy really was big thing in the 1930s by Walter Friedman. He made it famous. But it, but the first sort of going in and taking out a piece of the brain, actually, in my research and your research as well, it was 1892 it was the first time I saw it. it. Was this guy named Gottlieb Burkhardt it was in an, an asylum in Switzerland and he did some schizophrenics, and then there was uh, Igas Moniz, if that's how you pronounce it, of Portugal, and he was the one who 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 was really the one who went into the front into the front of the brain and was taking pieces out. So they were experimenting all the way back in 1900, 1901. I don't know. My family were peasants in Russia at that time. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that is that these people were literally explorers. 
and and they were just exploring the body. And we we see that a lot in this series. And I think that's what we wanted from the series is this idea of, you know, everyone asks why the show is so gory. And the point I always try to make is, is it's not gory, it's real. And what I love about the fact that we see all this is that we assume that the human body has has, you know, it's like a diagram we'd find on, you know, on Google of like, oh, here's the pancreas, here's this, here's the duodenum. And the truth is these guys were just looking at slick, gross, you know, slimy bodies. And they were trying to figure out what everything did and how it worked and what would happen if they did this and what they what would happen if they did that. And so for us, I think it was really, really important to make sure that everybody understood that bodies don't come with, with instruction manuals. You know, these guys were writing it at the time. And speaking of sick, Gross, however you described it, bodies. Um, another thing that happened in this episode was the big subway explosion. That actually was also a real event that happened when they were they were building the subway in uh, 1901. Um, I think it was around Park Avenue. That... Yeah, it was just below. Um, uh, it was actually just below uh, Grand Central. Right, and and there was a massive explosion when they were building it. This whole hotel went up. There were several deaths and um, a lot, a lot of injuries. But we, um, for budget reasons, had to bring it inside the, the Nick, and um, and we see the the operating theater inundated with these victims, and it's really like such. It's like you know, uh, field surgery during a war. I mean, it's the most bodies we've ever seen in there in the hallway. Um, it was our mash episode. Yeah. <clears throat> don't don't pull it out, or you'll bleed to death. We're gonna get you round to surgery. <laughs> Ten grains of mortar. <laughs> That compound fracture can wait. Let's get some pressure under his head. But I, one of the things that we wanted to sort of show was this Wild West world of the subways being built by people. And, you know, we have these lines where they say, you know, you're tunneling underground and you're, and you're you know, and, and people are saying, why would I ride in, in anything underneath the ground? And look how it has to be built. And what you can't quite believe is that this massive subway system was honestly built by men with shovels and picks and dynamite. And you you look at the New York City subway today. They've been building the Second Avenue subway for, what, 20 years or something? And they're, they haven't made nearly the progress, ironically, that, uh, that, that they made you know, underground in New York in, you know, between 1901 and 1904 or 5. And so it's really an extraordinary thing. But these things came with a massive cost. When they would build bridges or they would do subway um, construction or any giant project, they would literally factor in the number of people they thought would die on the project. You know, there was no liability. There was no, you know, there were no lawyers running in and, 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 and suing. You know, people settled out and all that other stuff. But, you know, in, in many of the major bridges, there are people buried inside of them if they died inside of of a cement stanchion as it was as it was hardening or anything like that and so it was a very cruel world and there it was it was it was you know one day you're standing there and a second later something explodes or something happens or you fall off or a girder goes everyone's seen those great old photos of the guys sitting and having their lunch i think they're building the Chrysler building and it's this you know they're they're 60 stories above New York without harnesses, without anything. And that's the world that we're really in. Uh, construction really is just whoever takes the job and however they get it done. And we have that great scene, the aftermath, we have that great scene inside the subway tunnel, which was uh, one of the most interesting, I think, 
locations location wise um of the of the uh, of the shoot and that subway tunnel and the restaurant that you see in the episode and all the great exteriors and many of the interiors are because of our guest who's our location manager and i think like the guy who's much better than Yelp or Zagat's or anything, knows more about restaurants and anything in the city than anybody I've ever met, uh, is Rob Stream. So, Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Hi, Jack. Good to be here. Hey. Um, so, you worked on other Soderbergh productions. And, and, and going through your list of credits, you've done a lot of contemporary New York films. When you got the call about this, what did you first think? Were you like... Wow, this sounds like a great challenge. Or were you like, oh, shit, this is going to be a nightmare? <laughs> um, well, a little bit of both. But anytime Soderbergh calls, uh, I'm there. And uh, we had great experiences on other projects before this. And uh, the information was kind of given to me in little bits. And uh, <clears throat> the first thing that was put out there was New York City at the turn of the century. And in these times, New York is evolving if you want to call it evolving, but changing at such a rapid Mm -hmm. pace, the thought of going all the way back uh, over 100 years into the past is, is of course, daunting with regard to control. Um, There is a great deal of architecture that still exists, but, you know, everything that we do from eliminating the modern elements to bringing in the horses and the carriages and the many extras in period costume and filtering the modern world out is uh, is certainly a challenge. But I have to say, we have a more civilized time, believe it or not, making this show with all of that than um, so many other productions. Uh, Name names. <laughs> well, it, it's truthfully, it's hard to, to do other jobs because we accomplish so much in a 10-hour day on the show, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And when we bring people in to help us that are new to us, they, they can't believe what they see. It's, it's, really, it's truly a unique operation. And we're do you, have, what we do you have off the top of your head, I'm just curious, how many locations you had to find this season? Um, Howard and I were talking about it. I think first season we had 35 days on location, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe 32, ha- ha- less than half. Um, this season, I think it was closer to 40, so it was maybe a little bit more than half of our filming days uh, were on location. Um, and of that, uh, I don't know, there are dozens. So how I'm curious, how long did it take to find the exterior, to find the hospital? Oh, uh, well, interestingly enough, that was the first, of course, the first assignment. And we're filming it the first thing that I stumbled upon. Um, I did a little bit of research into the architecture of the time and uh, where shooting at an actual hospital. First of all, a hospital from that period would have been modernized by now. So there weren't any actual pre-1900 hospitals. Uh, right. So we started thinking about other other types of institutional architecture, and the first thing that came to mind would be a school. There are many old school buildings that still stand in New York. And uh, we happened to learn that the superintendent of schools for the last decade or two of the 19th century, and I want to say his name, but I might get it wrong, I think it was James Naughton, and he was uh, the superintendent of schools, but he was also an architect. And he built many schools around Brooklyn, particularly uh, during that period. And we came mm. upon this building in Bed-Stuy, Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. And, I, you know, it had this kind of 
it's called Romanesque or Italianate uh, Victorian architecture of the time. It has a very European quality. And of course, for a show that's set in 1900, all the architecture predates the 20th century. So it was of the right period. It was built in the 18, early 1890s, I think, if not earlier. And it was one of those moments, which is uncommon, where here, and here's the first thing I've seen. You step out of the car and you look around, and not only is the building perfect, but all of the surrounding elements are nearly perfect. The brownstones across the street, not only on one side, but around the corner. There's a church across the street that's a bit more modern, but not in a, uh, a flagrant sort of way. Mm-hmm. Easily, we could make some changes to make that fit. And it just, and also the traffic wasn't too heavy. It just felt like a place that we could control. So it was the first and ultimately only location for the exterior of the hospital that we showed Steven Soderbergh. And he immediately loved it. Uh, It was set back from the street with the whole area to stage uh, the driveway and the the ambulance bay, which we built uh, adjacent to the actual facade. Uh, as well as an interior that works with it. It it was it was just like kismet. You're standing there. And then, of course, I go, all right, now how am I going to actually make this happen? This is an active right. school with four high schools in the building. And um, that was the next challenge. But uh, so, oddly enough, that one just kind of appeared right off the bat. Do you guys, like in your department, do you have specific specialties? Like are you good at finding bars and restaurants? Is Victoria good at finding you know, mansions? I mean, do you split it up that way? Yeah, does or? Hio, you know, does, does he, you know, Hio Park is the, is the other member, you know. I mean, sometimes I find him on totally different stuff than Victoria. Is it just random or is it like you know everybody uh, well, has a specialty? Hio and Victoria are like my left and right hand on that show as the two assistant location managers. And we try to divide the work up evenly. You know, we all have to be jacks of all trades in terms of you just never know what's going to be on the script. So if I can't turn down a job, oh, I only do, you know, I only do residential, <laughs> you know, right. or that, kind of, <laughs> that kind of thing. So, <laughs> so it's not like real estate. It's like real estate on steroids. It, it's largely, yeah, I mean, I know just like I, we hope we know our director pretty well after this time, we know each other pretty well. And I, I, I do cast it a little bit, you know, and it's maybe less about the type of location than the personalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always try to build a, a really, you know, diverse group of New Yorkers who, um, that's not to say they have to have lived here their whole lives, but they need to walk the walk and talk the talk because you need to size people up as soon as you approach them because you're asking something crazy of right. them. And, and at some point they may think we're insane. So, you know, based on the requests. So, you kind of have to quickly figure out who you're dealing with. And, yeah, sometimes I go, yeah, I think this person will get along well with this person. And we had a lot of uh, lot of new people second season because the work just demanded it. And so then training someone to understand how to how to run with the show is a challenge also. Well, but, I feel like uh, you, you guys have to be like London cabbies. I feel like you have to be on the knowledge all the time. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, especially how... when they ask me where to get where to get the pizza at three o'clock in the morning. Right? <laughs> well, that's that's the other thing that I found that Rob is sort of a god about. Like, I'll be like, we'll be on a Staten Island location, and our assistant will go get us a bunch of sandwiches because you know after a while you just don't want to eat catering or whatever. Right. No, no offense to catering, but I, I think <laughs> yeah, exactly that when, when we were on location, like 
we rarely ate catering because you just turn to Rob and you find out where is the great place <laughs> exactly. to eat. Exactly. And so Rob will look at us and go, where'd you get those sandwiches? Nunzios well, or, or Grazianos? <laughs> oh, yeah, I like Patsy. He's a nice guy. Tell him Rob said hi. Well, when we were up in, when we were up in Yonkers, <laughs> when we were looking at the, at the, at the, the Nick site, uh, the interior of the new hospital, um, there was the guy who worked there, Anthony, <laughs> Yeah, that's and right. Like, he was eating a, like a, a sausage sandwich. And <laughs> he was. I, yes, I think in that the trailer. You, yeah, and I think you knew where it was from. You're like, oh yeah, that place. Of like you looked at the seeds on the bun, and we're like, yeah, I, I know where that French bread comes from. You're it, exactly right. Actually, that's exactly <laughs> what happened. It was I, he was eating the sandwich, and I saw the seeds on the bun, and I knew it was Carlos uh, down the block. Absolutely. Um, that was a perfect account of that occurrence. You are the rain man. You're literally the rain man of carbohydrates. I like food. I don't know what to say. And it's come in handy. It's it's funny how it plays into what we do. This is my thing. Some people that do this job, anytime someone asks them where to eat, they just cringe. I have other location managers around New York call me and go, uh, hey, I'm doing a Tech Scout lunch for 50 at 11 o'clock in the morning on Park and 27th. Um, you know, where should we eat? Uh, so it's a little bit my thing, but um, it's great. You know, when you're out scouting, and things aren't going well or it's a long day and you're sick of sitting in the car and everyone's starving, I find that if you stop for a decent lunch, uh, it energizes you and uh, it makes the, the, the work day go better. So sometimes I've always found it to be a fun thing. And it's always nice to work with people who appreciate it also. Um, uh, that if you're in a, a little bit of an unusual place and it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere, if I've got the recon on on where to get the best uh, bagel and lox, it makes people happy. And where is that? In Yonkers? Uh, I, don't, I can't do that. <laughs> hey, there was one time on the Upper East Side, I walked in and found you guys eating in a postage stamp-sized deli. A pastrami so queen. Yes, yes. Yes. Come on, you're asking Jews to find a, to find a place for pastrami in Delhi? On the Upper East Side of Manhattan, of all places, when we were shooting there? Come on. Well, Fish in a barrel, go. my friend. You found that one on your own. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, so what's um, your biggest screw-up, the biggest nightmare? Not on ours, obviously, because I, I, honestly, it's gone incredibly smoothly. <laughs> but what's the one where you show up and there's, there's 200 crew members and they're spending a million dollars to shoot that day and they're like, you can't use this? Like, has anything ever um, happened like that? No, we don't. That can't happen. Um, it's, it's, like, it's one of those things like that. I tell everybody. And, and it's funny because you hear stories like that. And anytime I'm interviewing a new person, I ask them, of course, who they've worked for and what they've worked on. And if at any point a disaster story like that comes up, I'm like, well, well, you know that that can't happen here. We don't do that. <laughs> right? So truthfully, um, and this is funny on this show, I, I, I would say the closest example to that was this season and my Achilles heel truthfully is is sound on on a show like this because it's a catch 22 it's new york city there's nothing you can do about certain things and we're making the show in which you know there's no cars for the most part so you want control of something and i can get us permission and we shut the street down and we can control it and then you control too long and then cars start honking and that is a new problem. So that kind of thing. But the worst example of that was on the, the docks. Uh, was that it? Yeah, yeah. There was that, that pile <laughs> right. driving. And right. so. I think I really, I thought they were going to throw me off the, off the pier that day. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so to set the scene for our, for our, for our listeners, we go down to the South street seaport to shoot and it's a giant day. I mean, extras and it's big and it's expensive and we got a lot of stuff to get done and we've gotten every right and permission 
known to mankind. And on top of that, we're like, you know, this is really sort of the very, you know, important location for us. And next to us, I'm talking literally the next slip over, there is a pile driver that is literally going boom, boom, but the kind of earth shattering because it's a pile driver. It is shattering well, the it's earth. Like, it's, it's like, I don't know, eight stories tall, too. So you can imagine the size right. of the and driver. It's, and it's probably eight stories deep as right. well. And it's it's basically penetrating the bedrock beneath the river. Right. It's going to the and, center of the earth. And it is and literally right. with every every time it goes, everything shudders in such a horrible way. And there's no way we can shoot. And then you can just see Rob was like, oh my God. So I think this is where you find out that Rob, um, you you walk around with a lot of cash, don't you? Uh, that you know what that was. Here's another thing about what we do. Sometimes there isn't enough money in the world, and it's not even about money. And uh, it, that was one of those things where it was just the most awkward day of you know well uh, how much longer you know you get questions like when's this gonna stop and I'm on the phone with seven people and. Um, I'm getting nowhere, and uh, all I'm finding is out. All I'm finding out is sort of what the existing plan is for this construction endeavor. Um, and the reality was that in three—I can't believe we're talking about this—three, uh, <laughs> three or four hours from now, which is five or six hours into our filming day, they're going to be done. Hopefully, um, now, now, mind you, this is—I—I I, I have to put this out there. You know, it's not like we had no idea about this. We we tried to do the recon, and you try to talk to people. And, and actually, we even had a, a construction foreman tell us that they were going in on the weekend to try to be done um, by the time we got there on Monday. But, of course, you know, they didn't communicate, and, of course, it didn't get done. And then when push came to shove, you know, it's an operation that was just bigger than any of us and including the museum we were renting the pier from and um it was a it was a it was a challenging morning so when you're one of the things i want people to understand is that we are i mean we are just this massive thing we have to have trailers for props hair makeup wardrobe wardrobe and then on top of that we need massive generators we need we need all the trucks all the grip trucks the camera trucks all the other things. And in addition to that, you're feeding everybody. We get there, we get breakfast, we get there, we, you know, at lunchtime we get lunch. And so you have to, you're basically, we're throwing a, we're throwing like a a wedding every day worth of 200 people eating three times, sometimes a day. So, you know, when you're looking for a location, what are the boxes that you're ticking off going, we need this, we need this, we need this. What are the, all the things that you need? Well, it's, it's a balancing act because I, I always this is really one of the greatest challenges of my job is to let the aesthetic be the dominant factor, you know, in that no director wants to hear me. They, you, they see something perfect and I'm the the wet blanket going like, oh, but there's nowhere to eat and we can't park here. And, you know, sometimes there's a, a tangible reality to a thing where I'll size it up and I'll just tell them right off the bat, hey this may not work because of X, Y, Z. And either they'll say, well, we can get around that by looking that way. Or they'll be like, hmm, you know what? We can't shoot here. So I I owe it to our, our creative team to kind of let them have free reign of anything I'm going to show them, all the while silently, you know, panicking about all the <laughs> all the other things that have to be figured out once we commit to this. But... Yeah, the checklist is uh, on a period show, like 
get rid of all the cars and, and people and um, bring in the horses, treating the surfaces and the control beyond the 10 or 12 hour shoot day that it requires to set that up and clean that up. I mean, with the art department on this show, there are some locations like San Francisco Chinatown where we shot it for a half a day, maybe, and it prepped for two weeks. Wow. So it's not just what the crew sees, but it's the the preparation that leads up to that. On a shoot day, we not this is a real challenge on a period show. The the holding areas uh where we set up uh for all the background actors, hair, makeup, wardrobe and catering, as well as catering for the crew halfway through the day. So you're talking about a day with a couple hundred extras plus the crew, it's like three hundred people that we're feeding ideally in the same space that they're all going through the works to get their hair done. And this is very elaborate stuff. They come in with huge racks of costumes and it's not like a contemporary show where everyone, the extras can come dressed, you know, that kind of thing, you know, and then there's all the, you know, after everyone leaves, we have to be able to work here again and we have to treat the community properly. So I do a lot of uh, street sweeping and a lot of, water trucks and a lot of uh, kind of removal of the aftermath. Yeah, big sanitation is a big piece of my rice bowl. On, on, well, I see uh, you're <laughs> always, you know, you're always introducing us to, you know, you know, Jimmy from the mayor's office and this is Larry from the this office and, oh, this is a guy from the neighborhood and this is a teacher from the school. You are always working the neighborhood to make sure everyone feels good and everyone feels like, you know, that they're, that the place is being respected. And then, you know, people probably see this every time if they've ever seen a show being filmed. But we have cops who uh, – there's a special unit apparently of the NYPD. So you know all the cops you know everybody, and you sort of have to massage everyone and make them all feel listened to and cared for. I mean, so in terms of the cops, what do you have to schedule with them? What do you have to do? How does that all work? Well, you know, everyone you just mentioned, um, we couldn't make the show without them, truthfully, whether it's the Department of Transportation who removes all the modern-day parking signs for us, and we have to get that to them in advance, you know. And there are intricate maps outlining which ones have to go and which ones have to stay. We take down the Department of Transportation um, uh, gives us permission to remove traffic signals and street lights sometimes. Obviously, then you have to control that intersection from the point that the pole is removed to the point that it goes back in before and after our, our shooting time. And you have to be in a place that allows for that. The police were very fortunate in New York city in that we get um, free police coverage for uh, production, but it's a small unit of police officers that has to schedule itself to accommodate uh, many, many different productions. And they really prioritize based on what the work is that you're doing and, and how, um, potentially hazardous it is to the, the general public. Um, well, the amazing thing to me, and just listening to you talk about all this, is you have to have more relationships than I think anybody in the entire in the entire crew. I mean, you have you probably deal with more more different departments than any other department because because of how much needs to be coordinated. Yeah, but you're then, dealing with you're dealing with catering. You're dealing with with the horses. You're dealing with right, the props. You're dealing art with art department with the director with the ads yeah. with I mean really across lighting positions. Yeah. Camera, I mean even with us yeah. like you have to you know yeah we I mean we've had conversations where you say I can't get this or when we were doing the sailboat I think I came to you and I asked okay how do we pull this off you know I mean we deal with you all the time. But then on top of that it's just all these people you have to deal with that make it happen in the city. I mean it, it's it's an it's an incredible list 
of of people that you have to have like you know in your phone you know your Rolodex at any yeah. given moment. I mean I I mean really it's it's. I think what we're saying, Rob, is we just realized you're not a piece of shit. Yes. <laughs> We realize we realize that I'm you so actually glad do something. I'm here today. You're not that's the guy awesome. who recommends yes. sandwich joints. Apparently, right. you're really good right. at this. That's, that's what I thought walking in. <laughs> wow, this has been so educational. Thank you. I, uh, I you know, I, 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 yes, we deal with every department, um, and we want to deal with every department because if everyone was going rogue, uh, you know, at various locations, we wouldn't make it we wouldn't be invited back next season we wouldn't make it through the day i call it the production vacuum everyone's dealings for the most part are with people that facilitate the making of film and television um we have to then sort of communicate that to the civilians in the world and have them get on board too and it makes it interesting we we get to ride both sides of the line when i had a conversation with soderberg a few weeks ago we were talking about these podcasts and and his first recommendation is oh you got you got to talk to rob stream i mean your location manager is so important and well, that's really sweet and thank yeah you. i mean i i was it wasn't me it was it was steven oh uh, i thank you steven yeah i was <laughs> i had booked someone else for this slot but um yes. but no he cuz it's so vitally important especially on a show like ours so we are inordinately grateful for what you do um, and for what your your you. yeah it, your parking guys do and for literally what your entire department does. Yeah, I mean, we can't say enough about how, how so great much. the show looks and what a big part of that you and your whole department are. Thank you. I mean, working on the show is a true pleasure. Working with all of you is a pleasure. Working with Stephen is an exceptional experience. He's incredibly decisive and communicative. And at this point, um, you know, and he doesn't, want to spend his time scouting 15 choices for each thing. Howard Cummings, the production designer, is is so brilliant at this, and uh, he kind of lets Howard and I go out and figure a lot of it out, and, and he uh, he trusts us. He doesn't, he doesn't choose to spend his time figuring it out with us, and in a way that gives us a tremendous amount of, of creative license, and uh, I'm thrilled the show looks so great. It's it's a great experience working on it. My last question is just, where are you eating now? Like, where's your favorite spot right now? Have you discovered something new? <laughs> well, I just moved to uh, the suburbs. I'm I'm living in in Maplewood, New Jersey. So I'm really uh, it's I, I actually okay. You know we don't want to know the, that... the, the hot spot in Maplewood. No, uh, although I have a problem. feeling you'll be so, opening it fairly soon. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm thinking just so I have a place to eat. Uh, not that there aren't good places, but there's like five of them, and they all close at nine. So, um, <laughs> but in in Manhattan, is there any place or or Brooklyn or Queens? Um, hmm. you know, it's it hasn't been my focus so much lately. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we could play the restaurant game, but I mean, I drove through the tunnel today, and I was so. I actually it was the first thing that came to my mind. Where am I going to have dinner tonight? Okay, and, uh, okay, Rob. So Stern, I, last meal, your last meal, your last meal in the five boroughs. Where's it going to be? Uh, you know what? I have to go with the the most reliable standby, and it's in this neighborhood. And I might even go there now that we're talking about it. Is uh, Bar PT on Sixth Avenue between uh, House and Bleecker, which is the most authentic. Uh, Tuscan Trattoria in all of New York and uh, just don't put cheese on your fish they'll yell at you and don't, <laughs> and don't go next your door pasta with a spoon <laughs> and, yeah, and, and don't go and, next and door don't go to Del Silvano next door <laughs> and it's cash only so be prepared and uh, anyway I've probably had 300 meals there in my life and never a bad one so uh, there you go 
Well, that'll do it for this edition of the Nick Podcast. Today's podcast was produced by Barry Finkel with production help from Emily Rubin. Make sure to check out next week's episode entitled There Are Rules this Friday at 10 p.m. only on Cinemax. And then join us on the podcast when we'll be talking to Emmy Award winner Howard Cummings, our amazing production designer. If you like what you hear, let us know. Give us a review in iTunes, comment on Facebook, Twitter, or go to Tumblr where you can find more great content under At The Nick. Tell your friends, family, dogs, cats, mail carrier, Trader Joe's employee, whoever. Let's just help spread the word about the show. So until next time, I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiel. Thanks for listening.